Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. 
So we'll be picking up your calls on whatever you would like to talk about. There are a few things in the news that I wanted to discuss with you real quickly. Extreme weather events linked to climate change impact on the jet stream. We talked to Michael Mann about this earlier in the week. They just published the research, this out of Penn State University. This is pretty amazing stuff. It's over on the website at psu.edu. Extreme weather events are occurring more and more often. They went back and looked at things like the 2003 European heat wave, the 2010 Pakistan flood and the Russian heat wave, the 2011 Texas and Oklahoma heat waves, and the drought and the 2015 California wildfires, and pointed out that what's happening is that it's not so much like the weather is getting wilder. 100 degree temperatures are not extraordinarily unusual in a lot of these places. What's unusual about them is that they last for more than a few hours or more than one day. It's that they're lasting for two, three, four, five days, a week, two weeks, three weeks. And then when they last that long, what would normally be just one hot day turns into a full-blown drought. And what's causing this? So it turns out it's caused by global warming. It's caused by the melting of the Arctic. The Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the planet. And as a result of that, the temperature difference, it's called the temperature gradient, between the Arctic and the mid-latitudes or the tropics has diminished. And it's that difference in temperature that maintains the power of the jet stream. So the jet stream is getting weaker and weaker, and it just kind of drools down over the, uh, North America or Europe or Russia or whatever it may be and locks into place. And when it locks into place, you get weeks of the same weather, whether it's extreme drought in the west or whether it's extreme rain in the east, which then leads to flooding after you know one day of heavy thunderstorms, no big deal. Four days in a row, you've got flooding. So that's going on. Donald Trump is doing his uh, sanctions on Turkey thing, and Turkey's currency is collapsing. He's doing this because of this guy, Pastor Brunson. Mike Pence recently said, to believers across America, I say, pray for Pastor Brunson. Johnny Moore, a member of an evangelical advisory board that counsels Donald Trump. This is a story by Dmitry Sevastopolu. This is the Financial Times, FT.com. In an article titled, Donald Trump Uses Dispute with Turkey to Rally Evangelicals. This is a cheap political trick. This guy, Johnny Moore, he said, in every church in the country, people know the name Andrew Brunson. And he's advising Trump, him and Pence are advising Trump on how to reach out to the Christian vote. They note in the Financial Times, many analysts said Mr. Trump could not win. This is back in 2016 during the election. And argued that evangelicals who make up one quarter of the U.S. population wouldn't support a liberal real estate mogul with three wives and lots of affairs and, and uh, all this kind of stuff. But Trump took more than 80% of the evangelical vote. Why? Well, because of Mike Pence. Mike Pence is, you know, won't have dinner with a woman who's not his wife if they're sitting alone. He calls his wife mother. He's a good little boy, I guess. I, you know, I, anyhow, this is pretty grim. And Rachel Maddow last night was talking about, and I think this is actually a huge deal. I was shocked that none of the shows on MSNBC this morning were going back to what she was talking about. And she was asking the question, this is extraordinary. She was asking the question, why is Donald Trump revoking these security clearances? And then she went through the list of everybody on Trump's list that he wants to revoke, right? He started with Brennan. Brennan was the guy, the CIA director, who briefed Trump before he became president in 2016, about how the Russians were trying to get him elected. This was after he won the election, but he was briefed on this by Brennan. Brennan is the first guy, you know, he was fired and now he's lost his security clearance. But everybody else on the list was also 
essentially in the room. They had knowledge of the collusion between Trump and Russia or knowledge of the investigation into the collusion between Trump and Russia and therefore were potential witnesses for Bob Mueller. But to be witnesses, they have to have access to classified information. So if Trump can cut off their access to classified information, they're no longer useful witnesses. Well, he's got pretty much all but one of the people on his list were witnesses and would be called by Mueller. This is Donald Trump trying to shut down Mueller's investigation without taking out Mueller, although there is speculation that the next guy whose security clearance he's going to pull is going to be Bob Mueller's. And if he does that, the investigation is shut down altogether. So some just bizarre stuff. There's a bunch of other things in the news today about China and their military coming after the U.S., new stuff on autism. Revising strategy, the Aiden sisters in their Aiden forecast newsletter are talking about different ways to invest now, given how the world is changing. We'll get to all that in the second and third hour of the program, but right now let's pick up some of your phone calls. Steve in Union Beach, Virginia. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing? Good. I enjoy your show. It's great. At one time, we used to compromise for the good of the nation, and now we are compromising for the good of the corporation. And this is because of our beloved K Street, which is writing all the bills and putting it on both parties. What's your thought on that? I completely agree. Jimmy Carter said it on this program three or four years ago. He said the United States is no longer a functioning democracy. It's become an oligarchy with unlimited political bribery. And that's what Citizens United, it's really, it started in 1976 with the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, which said that for billionaires and corporations to give money to politicians, that was an exercise of First Amendment, constitutionally protected free speech. The Supreme Court expanded that in a series of decisions. They expanded that to corporations two years later in the First National Bank versus Bellotti decision. Then they expanded both of those in 2010, in October 2010, with the Citizens United decision. And then in 2013, there were still limits on how many politicians you could buy if you were a billionaire. I think the limit was like 130 or something like that. And they just blew wow. up that limit. And they said a billionaire can own an unlimited number of politicians. So, you know, the Koch brothers own basically the entire Republican Party now as a consequence of these decisions. Right. And how about a little comment about the uh, dummy nonprofit corporation? They look like they're for the environment, but they're actually set up by the Exxon oil companies. And oh, yeah. Like the that. Exxons and the Cokes, there's all kinds of front organizations. And if, if you position it as a 501c4, then you can actually engage in political activity and you can support a candidate or attack a candidate but you have to disclose your donors. If you position it as a 501c3, which is what schools and communities for abused kids and the YMCA are, you know, social welfare organizations, if you position it as a 501c3 and only talk about, quote, the issues, you can bring a candidate in. You can say, you know, this, this you know, so-and-so is great on this issue or so, but by implication, you can't explicitly say it. And you don't have to reveal your donors. And then, and then you're absolutely right. They come up with these bizarre names you know, friends of the environment, workers united with labor and stuff like that. And they're just, they're nonsense. Good point, Steve. Thank you very much for calling and making it. Margie in Wisconsin Rapids. I'm assuming that's Wisconsin, Margie. Yes, it is. It says you want to disagree am, with me about closed primaries? Yes. You used Monday, which ironically was the day before I was voting. You used the analogy that being a member of a homeowners association and having somebody from outside the homeowners association come in to vote. The better analogy is I belong to a homeowners association, but I'm not allowed to vote because I don't belong to the country club. 
understand in small states or in rural areas of which I live, I had to make the decision, do I vote in the Democratic primary so I have a voice in who's the gubernatorial nominee? Or do I vote in the Republican primary so I can have a voice in my local elections? Well, whether you had a closed or an open primary, you'd still have to make that choice. You can only vote in one yes, of the two elections. At least in an open primary, I can vote for something. Right now, if Wisconsin was a closed primary, to vote in a local election, I would have to join the Republican Party. To vote in a primary in a local election. In a primary in a right. local election, because right. there are no Democrats running. Well, why don't you run for Those office? Because I'm an over-the-road truck driver and home about one Okay, well, why don't you support long. somebody who's running for office? Margie, just for the record, let me say, and I say this whenever this topic comes up, I'm very ambivalent about closed versus open primaries. I can build a case for either one. And about half our states have open primaries and about half our states have closed primaries. And I don't see a huge difference in the quality or nature of the candidates that are coming out of those different states. With the closed primaries, the argument I was making is if somebody has you know, really committed their efforts and their lives to this party, the example I use is when I lived in Michigan back in, I think it was 68, because the Republicans crossed over. We had open primaries in Michigan. Republicans crossed over. There was a huge campaign to do this. My dad was one of the people involved in it. The Republicans crossed over and voted in the Democratic primary specifically to vote for George Wallace to embarrass the Democrats. And Michigan actually sent George Wallace to the Democratic Party convention in, I think it was in Chicago in 68. Yeah, it was, the big riots. And it was horribly embarrassing for the Michigan Democrats. And, and we didn't have an opportunity to send a, you know, a good or progressive candidate. We sent George Wallace, for God's sake, because the Republicans all voted for him because we had open primaries. So on the one hand, I can see how that opens things up for dirty tricks. On the other hand, I'm guessing Democrats can play dirty tricks just as easily as Republicans. And in fact, you know, arguably that's what Claire McCaskill did in promoting her opponents in the last two elections in Missouri. So whether it's open or closed, they have their own unique problems. I'm not in favor specifically of one or the other. So just for the record, Margie, thanks for the call. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 
30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Dave from Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, the other day you were talking about how um, as the human population has increased exponentially along with the progression of time and technology. Right. And that's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a deep topic. And I know sometimes you steer away from them because you don't like to generalize. But I wanted to get your take on this study, if you have one. Uh, it's an Earth biomass study that shows that the human population, even if you include livestock, accounts for less than like 1% of the biomass on the Earth. However, we consume the vast majority. And I guess my question is this. A, does that worry you? And B, do you think we'll reach a tipping point to where we will consume so much of what's in our biosphere that the Earth can't replenish it? I think we passed that tipping point back sometime between the 1930s and the 1970s. I don't recall the exact point. I remember reading about this, and I might have written about it when I was writing Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight back in 1996. And the point was that uh, we had, at that point, passed 50% of the Earth's NPP, the net photosynthetic productivity. All the products of photosynthesis on the Earth, more than 50% of them were being used by humanity or were being degraded by humanity. And, uh, you know, that's clearly a point at which we're no longer sustainable. I don't think that we have been sustainable as a population without the extraction of massive natural resources. We're outcompeting every other species on Earth. The oceans are on the verge of dying. We've got massive species extinctions. I'm not seeing bugs anymore or butterflies and very rarely seeing any kind of bird other than the occasional seagull, crow or scrub jay. Our biosphere all around us is dying, as far as I can tell. I was walking into work this morning. They've, we've got these greenways all around Portland, and you can walk for, you know, I walk about a little more than a mile to get to work. And it's on a path that, you know, follows, you know, waterways and all kinds of cool stuff. And, I, I, you know, I, I saw a little bunny a couple of days ago, but that's about it. I mean, you know, the wildlife is just being wiped out all over the planet. So, yeah, this concerns me tremendously, Dave. You know, I don't know that we're 1%. Well, I, I, I'm hesita- I hesitate to put a number on it. If you've got the actual study, Dave, tweet it to me. I do read my Twitter feed every day, and I'll check it out. It does concern me. Where do you want to go with that, Dave? Oh, no, I was hoping you'd make me a little bit less concerned about it, but apparently that's not going to happen. No, I'm yeah. very um, concerned well, that- about it as well. There, 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 is, you know, there are two things that we can do about this, and the first is to eat less meat. Every meal that you have that has meat on it is 20, 30, 40 times harder on the environment than a meal that is entirely vegetable products. So if we all became vegans overnight, you would see a massive liberation of large chunks of the, of the biosphere, number one. And number two is you know, try to do everything we can to reduce our carbon footprint. That's much more difficult. That's something that has to be done on a systemic level, on a policy level, on a, you know, at the level of governance. But there's got to be some point of criticality where it can't be reversed. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's this chain reaction. It can't I, be, you know, uh, I'm not sure of that reversed. because if you look at uh, it, it will always be reversed, Dave. It's just the question of is it going to be reversed in, in human time scales or in geologic time scales? Every time, you know, we've had five major extinctions on the Earth and life has always bounced back. It bounces back in different ways. 
you know, different species will emerge. We're seeing invasive species traveling around the world. We're seeing species start to mutate as a consequence of humanity's uh, involvement. But, you know, life is resilient. The planet is resilient. The question is, will the human species survive or will the species on which we depend for our life survive? And that is up in the air. Dave, thanks for the call. I don't mean to sound too pessimistic, but these are some things that we really do need to take uh, very seriously. Uh, Patrick in Snoqualmie, Washington. Hey, Patrick, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Yeah, Snoqualmie. So uh, thanks for taking my call, Tom. I listen to you in my dump truck. Aha, uh-huh, cool. And uh, I really enjoy it, which brings me to my moral dilemma. I'm uh-huh. driving a dump truck. I've owned, I've owned and operated dump trucks for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of tied to the economy, right? Right. Good economy, good times. People need roads. People need houses, utilities to their homes, things like this. But there I go to the diesel pump every day at the end of the day, and I buy 40 gallons of diesel sure. for each truck. So what's your question? And honestly, it puts me in a moral dilemma. I think about the earth that we live in, but how, I mean, it's not my fault. Everybody wants a house or a road, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's where I get tied up. And I wanted, I'm curious about your thoughts. Like how do we balance society wants these things and it's, it's tied to to petroleum. Right. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I honestly, sometimes you're a businessman. I, I don't know. I don't know how to balance that. Well, one, one of the things that we know, Patrick, is that, and, and we know this from looking at European countries, that electric vehicles can power trains. They do all over Europe. They do a few of them here, but, you know, trains are not small or lightweight devices. They can power trucks. You've got electric-powered trucks now. Volvo is making them. They're, they're traveling in Europe. Um, you know, so I think that the day when electric-powered dump trucks come, and the electricity is being generated by, by water power, wind power, or solar power is not that far down the road. The, you know, because the technology now works, it's just a matter of getting it into broad use. And that typically takes a little bit of help from the government, you know, uh, uh, tax credits or something like that for, for using electric rather than diesel. But the, the, and, the, and the other part of that is that the simple reality is that no matter whether, if, if you were to say, okay, that's it, I'm sick and tired of using all this diesel fuel, I'm just gonna go out of business and go on food stamps, uh, or get a job at McDonald's, that's not going to save the environment at all because somebody else is going to come along and buy your dump truck at, at a uh, you know bargain price and and go back into your business. So you know right. I, 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 this is why all of us who are concerned about these issues and these are legitimate concerns that you're raising. All of us who are concerned about these issues need to educate ourselves about what the alternatives are. And I think, as I said, electric vehicles is, a, is the way that everything is going to be going. And, and, you're right. starting, and they're actually making some of these things. They're making heavy equipment in China that's electric powered. I'm not sure if they're making dump trucks, but things like graders and, and whatnot. And, and it's, it's just a matter of working for the policies at the federal and state level and what state are you in? You're in uh, Washington State. I mean, Washington State's fairly progressive. Yeah. Maybe you could encourage your state legislators even to put programs in place that would incentivize, uh, you know, manufacturers of heavy equipment like dump trucks to 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 create ones that are electric powered. Uh, you know, it's it's not rocket science. It's it's actually a technology that is fully mature right now. So you know, we right. need to be looking at at these things at a systems level, at a policy level, rather than at the individual level. At the individual level, we can sit around and beat ourselves up all day long. Oh my God, I was on an airplane. Oh my God, I drove my car. But you know, it's not 
and, and those behaviors, when you add them up over millions and millions of people, actually do have a consequence, a negative consequence. But individually changing them is not going to have that large a consequence. The, the only area that I know of where individual change actually has a large change out there in the world and that it's, it's viral, it's contagious, and more and more people can be awakened to it is eating meat and, and other animal products. The extent that we can actually get healthier by eating a vegetable-based diet, it actually helps us. So anyhow, that, but that's about it. Patrick, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Mitch watching us on Free Speech TV in Astoria, Oregon. Oh, Astoria is uh, one of our favorite towns. It's such a great city. Mitch, what's on your mind today? Oh, thank you, Tom, for taking my call. Hope you're well, and uh, thank you for uh, uh, for everything you do. Thanks. Back at you, um, Mitch. What's up? Appreciate uh, the fact that uh, so many callers, and it's really optimistic to hear many of them talking about the environment, which is the only problem, really, that... Uh, paramount yeah, none of the other stuff really matters it's the one and that can I wipe us all out yeah yeah and i appreciate what you do to help in your own personal way uh, walking to work living on a boat uh i too am a free spirit who does the same thing only mine is a uh, rv or a camper that uh, goes up and down the coast and uh, i do all i can to uh do my own political small steps, I call them, or uh, personal politicking, mm-hmm. and that involves uh, volunteering for uh, gardens that are food, uh, for food banks and uh, planting fruit trees. And one of the things I called about was recycling. As you know, we have this monstrous plastic thing washing ashore during the typhoons, and it just says to me once again that we all have to take personal responsibility for what we do and the choices we make. We also need to take, and I think it's even more important, that we take societal responsibility. We need to participate in the political and educational processes that drive large social changes like a move toward recycling. I lived in Michigan in the 70s when a bunch of activists were trying to get, you know, a, a fee on bottles. And, you know, you pay five cents extra for the bottle and then when I, recycling, I, there's a word for it, but I'm... It's escaping me. Well, that, but, but, you know, you know it was um, like that was driven by activists and it produced a change. I mean, we, we measurably, dramatically reduced the amount of trash along the roadsides in Michigan by simply passing the bottle bill. Well, you're right about the fact that getting involved in societal issues is important. Not only thing is, I noticed by traveling and talking with people up and down the coast that we're, there's a lot of people that are trying their best to just uh, mentally handle all this stress. Yeah. And... Um, I would just like to point out that um, what's important here is that we model actions speak louder than words, uh, model good, the behavior that you, your callers want, and, uh, and uh, which I'm sure you do as well. And that is uh, not using plastic straws, for instance, not uh, make, wasting your water unnecessarily, uh, making sure that uh, you avoid fast food and try to eat uh, fresh produce rather than packaged uh, stuff. I was at the first Polar Day uh, in Davis uh, when Charles Manson's uh, name was on the front page rather than the whole Earth Day. I've been an activist probably as long as you have. I'm just trying to 
wrap my head around the newer generation and how they're approaching the issues that face us. Yeah, I think they're doing good. I, I have great hope because of the millennial generation. They are woke. They know what's going on, by and large. And Mitch, it's great that you're, uh, you're basically a troubadour for uh, a traveling evangelist. Good on you. Charlene in Gilbert, Arizona. Hey, Charlene, thanks for listening to us on TuneIn. What's up? Hi, Tom. A couple of weeks ago, you had a few listeners call and talk about flying their flags upside down as, mm-hmm. a, as a means of protesting. And I agree with you about, you know, being concerned about having, you know, the police or emergency services come and barge down, your, break down your door in concern for your safety. Right. What I've decided to do is whenever I mail um, paper mail, I take my stamp and I turn it upside down since it's a flag stamp. Yeah, I've been doing and that. Then I, and then I go on to Facebook periodically and, and post a picture of, a, of an envelope with stamp on upside down and explain why I do it. Yeah. So that might be something people can do. Great. Well, that's a good suggestion, uh, uh, Charlene. Thank you. I, I've been I've done that myself. I have those flag stamps, and I, I'll from time to time stick them on upside down. That's a great idea. Thank you. The news of the day: What's going on out there? This uh, most recent one is the uh, Democrats know that Brett Kavanaugh, the guy that Donald Trump wants to put on the Supreme Court, that he lied to Congress which, by the way, is a five-year felony. He lied to Congress back in 2006 in his confirmation hearings when they were considering putting him on the D.C. Circuit Court bench. Uh, This is the second highest court in America, by and large. Most of the people who end up on the Supreme Court were on the D.C. Circuit first. It's the one that deals with most government stuff. And Brett Kavanaugh in 2006 was appointed to this by George W. Bush in payment for his working in the George W. Bush administration, helping vet torture memos and the torture of, of people, of human beings, and helping vet the illegal wiretapping of Americans. And when he got up before Congress, uh, first of all, we've got the proof of this. I mean, you know, there's, there's actually emails. There are at least two publicly available documents. This is from uh, Daily Kos, a piece by Joan McCarter. There are two, at least two publicly available documents on the Bush Library website. You can see this on the Internet right now that show that Brett Kavanaugh was absolutely involved in government rendition, in the treatment of detainees, and uh, illegal wiretapping when he was the staff secretary to George W. Bush. Uh, in fact, he, he laid out a set of talking points about the secret torture policy. But when he got before the committee, he said, and I quote, I have not seen or heard anything about the president's wiretapping program until December of 2005, long after this happened. He said he was not aware of any issues regarding the legal justifications of the policies relating to the treatment of detainees his words, was, quote, not involved in the questions about the rules governing detention of combatants, his words, and had nothing to do with the issues, had nothing to do with issues relating to rendition, and was unaware of and saw no documents related to the warrantless wiretapping program conducted without congressional authorization. These apparently are all lies. Brett Kavanaugh lied in order to become a federal judge, and now he's trying to lie in order to become a member of the Supreme Court. And the Democrats are not having it. They're trying to subpoena these records. Uh, The question in my mind is, when does Trump pull his nomination? I mean, this is like Harriet Myers or like uh, Robert Bork. So we'll see. Uh, Meanwhile, there is uh, small business owners are asking Congress to restore net neutrality. This is a uh, a telepressor event that's happening today. It's being put on by fightforthefuture.org. 
and they're targeting constituents. These are local business owners who live in the districts of uh, Rep Representative uh, Roscombe, who is a Republican for Illinois' 6th District, Representative Gardner, uh, who, excuse me, Representative Fazzo, who is a, rep a Republican representative from New York's 19th District, uh, Kansas City, uh, Representative Yoder from Kansas's 3rd, Syracuse, New York, uh, Representative Katko, who of uh, New York's 24th, in Anchorage, Alaska, Representative Don Young from Alaska, the uh, the zero, the, the one congressional district in Alaska. They're targeting these Republicans to say, if you guys will simply join the Democrats in signing this request for a discharge petition so that we can have a vote in the House of Representatives on net neutrality, it's already passed the Senate. Let's get this vote in the House and, and fix this. Number one. Number two, other, other news stories here. Shepard Smith has been just doing some amazing stuff on Fox so-called news. Uh, basically taking down Sean Hannity every day. I'm, I'm wondering how long is this going to last? How long before Sean Hannity takes down Shepard Smith the way he took down Alan Combs? He got sick and tired of Alan Combs, contradicted him, and got him fired. But here's, here's, what, here's what Shepard Smith said on Fox the other day, uh, you know, pushing back on, on Sean Hannity's lies. He said, and I quote, much of Giuliani's attack on Brennan involved the dossier compiled by the former British spy Christopher Steele that the administration has repeatedly asserted was what began the Russian investigation. It was not what began the Russian investigation. The Russian investigation began after the former Trump policy advisor, George Stephanopoulos, told an Australian diplomat that the Russians had dirt on his then political opponent, Hillary Clinton. That information was passed along to intelligence officials, which is absolutely correct. Trump keeps saying that it was the Steele dossier that started the whole Mueller investigation. It wasn't. It was George Papadopoulos bragging to an Australian diplomat that the Russians had dirt on Hillary and, they, and, that, the, and that the Trump campaign was going to get it. For context, Shepard Smith says, the research in the dossier includes 17 memos produced by the former spy Christopher Steele. This is pushing back on the idea that Christopher Steele has been debunked. Shepard Smith said they allege misconduct in a conspiracy between members of the Trump campaign and the Russian government during the 2016 election. Some assertions in the dossier have been confirmed. Other parts are unconfirmed. None of the dossier, to Fox News's knowledge, has been disproven. So here you've got the Fox News operation, Shepard Smith, contradicting the Fox propaganda operation, Sean Hannity. It's fascinating. It's just absolutely fascinating. And finally, George Monbiot has a piece in The, uh, in the Guardian. Uh, we're in a new age of obesity. How did it happen? And uh, he's, he's citing a, uh, well, actually, maybe he's not. Yeah, somebody called yesterday. You no, know, here it is. It's uh, Jacques Peretti in his film, The Men Who Made Us Fat. Uh, Sean tracked this down for me. You can't find it on YouTube or the, the usual sources because it's a BBC report and it's restricted to the England. But they came to the United States and they looked at why did we start getting obese in the 1980s? And it turns out that it was Earl Butts, Ronald Reagan's agriculture secretary, pushing policies that would massively subsidize your and my tax dollars, massively subsidizing the production of corn. A decade earlier, the Japanese, a group of Japanese scientists had figured out a chemical process to create a brand new chemical compound out of corn. It's called high fructose corn syrup. But it's something that has never been part of the diet of human beings in all of the three million years of our evolution, the 250,000 years of our modern history. We've never been exposed to it. But the Earl Butts was promoting policies that would replace sugar as a sweetener, which was coming from Cuba and from Central and South America, countries that Reagan didn't like, replace that with high fructose corn syrup. 
this chemical that whacks us. And now, uh, you know, the, we know we're actually eating fewer calories than we were in 1976, and yet we're massively fatter than in 1976. Why is it? And he says it's not a decline in manual labor. We're actually working more than we were uh, then. It's not voluntary exercise. Children's physical activity is the same as it was 50 years ago. So what has happened? Sure enough, it's high fructose corn syrup and a lot of other sugar in our diet. High fructose corn syrup, it turns out, Louise and I watched this documentary last night. There, there are bootleg copies on the internet. And high fructose corn syrup, it turns out, blocks the body's production of a hormone called leptin. Leptin is the hormone that your body produces when it gets uh, sugar levels, blood sugar level signals that say that you've eaten enough, that you're full. And it produces a, a response in your brain that is like, okay, I'm full, time to stop. Uh, and, and uh, well, uh, Steve Behrman was a guest on our program a month or so ago, and his wife Trudy, Steve, Steve and Trudy were staying at our house. And they've both lost a lot of weight since the last time I talked to, uh, I saw them, which was maybe six years ago. They both look, you know, quite healthy and vibrant and, and just great. And I was like, wow, how'd you lose all that weight? And Steve said, well, you know, we, we learned that there's this little switch in your body, which is the I've had enough switch. And we just started paying attention to it and stopped eating, you know, and, and, and sure enough, uh, you know, Louise made a great meal for them. And halfway through the meal, they both said, thank you very much. We're done and pushed back plates with half the food on it. If we stopped getting insulted by that, which we weren't, I mean, it, it was really cool. It was in the context of that conversation. And we all started saying, no, I'm done. Uh, you know, we'd be a lot healthier. But the problem is that if there's high fructose corn syrup in your food, which is ubiquitous, I mean, it's in coleslaw, it's in ketchup. If there's high fructose corn syrup in your, in your body, you don't hear that switch click. It turns off the body's response to leptin, which is what triggers that, okay, I'm full response. So something, you know, uh, on a personal level we can all avoid, and on a societal level, we need to stop subsidizing the production of corn, which has wiped out Mexican farmers and is causing all of us to get obese. And, uh, you know, now they're looking for another story. Oh, let's make it into ethanol. Let's just stop subsidizing it and start growing fruits and vegetables in the breadbasket of America. It's better for us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Plus, a lot of this corn is being fed to feed animals, which, you know, is not what they're grown to eat. I mean, they're, they're supposed to eat grass, and it's causing all kinds of health problems among them, too. Luke Vargas on the line with us uh, with Talk Media News. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Uh, Luke, welcome back. Uh, Syria, Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, what's going on here? So this is sort of a slow developing story, but it's finally um, you know, come to a head today. So in March of this year, when Tillerson leaves, Pompeo comes in to replace him, the U.S. government puts a hold on about $200 million in money that we had already appropriated to help rebuild and stabilize Syria after the defeat of the Islamic State. So this was, this was put into place during the Obama administration? No, no. Uh, this was um, just in the, in the Tillerson to Pompeo transition. This money had been appropriated by the Trump administration last year as okay. it was winding down the fight in Syria, mm -hmm. particularly after the recapture of Raqqa. And Tillerson, um, I think we covered it at the time around the, the beginning of this year, gave a big speech talking about, you know, a multi-year strategy to um, make sure that the hard-fought gains in Syria were preserved. Right. And I think we noted at the time that this sort of long view stabilization mentality from Tillerson, while it made sense, was in sharp contrast to the kind of 
let's get out quickly and declare victory uh, mentality that President Trump has had regarding Syria. And so unsurprisingly, when Tillerson is shown the door uh, and Pompeo comes in, the remaining $193 million that we had already put aside to essentially you know, go to Raqqa to um, do a little bit of physical rebuilding, but mostly to be working with NGOs and civil society groups to help um, ensure that there's good governance in the wake of the Islamic State exit, that we're building institutions in those captured cities. Um, Right. And and supporting Kurdish fighters in eastern Syria that helped us recapture many of this much of this territory. And so what now has officially happened um, as of today is that the U.S. has uh, officially said we are not going to spend that money. We're going to put it to other things in our military um, and uh, asked by reporters sort of, you know, like, is this appropriate? Shouldn't we be spending this? The administration has said, well, the Saudis are going to pay for it and the Emiratis are going to pay for it. I think it's 100 million from the Saudis, 50 million from the Emiratis. And there's apparently another 150 million coming from other Gulf allies of ours. Um, I just got off the phone with two experts, Stephen Heidemann from the Middle East Studies Program at Smith College uh, and Joe Barnes from the Baker Institute at Rice University. And both of them basically said we should not confuse American dollars and Saudi dollars in this fight. Um, that it, you know, in some ways, yes, this money is going to go to NGOs and it's going to go to third party groups. It's not like you're going to have American soldiers, you know, passing out the cash and shaking hands with locals. But it's going to be pretty clear to the civilians of Raqqa and to the Kurdish fighters that we fought alongside that we came in, we destroyed Raqqa in, you know, in an effort to get rid of the Islamic State. Um, and we talked a big game about how stable institutions need to come up in their wake, but we're not there to see it done. Um, and that that is going to, in many ways, increase the likelihood that the U.S. might need to go back, that these commu- these weakened communities are going to have fewer resources um, and and no more lying to Washington. I think that's really important here. It's not just about the dollar figures. It's about what does uh, this money, what kind of other benefits come along with it. Right. Um, and the fact is, uh, when we give this money, there are American interests on the ground occasionally, which uh, sort of are, are looking into whether that money is being spent wisely. And it's important for local actors to be able to appeal to us if they see that money being spent unwisely. So this, the summary here is sort of penny wise, pound foolish that, you know, we are uh, for, for a battle that President Trump has said is so important. We may well and, and pair this with our story earlier this week that the U.N., thinks there's 20 to 30,000 Islamic State fighters in this region anyways, uh, we may well be needing to go back and and we're going to have to go back in as opposed to already being there in the first place. Amazing. Um, I I reported a little earlier in the program that uh, it's being reported that China is having their bomber pilots trained for strikes against the United States. Is this something we should worry about? American targets in um, East Asia is is how that needs to be clarified. Okay. Um, this this is not you know. Uh, so East Asia would that be of... you mean Taiwan, <laughs> Japan, South Korea, yeah, or you well, mean U.S. Yeah, military bases? Report, yeah, so uh, a little bit of both. So this is a report that the Pentagon puts out every year where they assess the People's Liberation Army, and they say the biggest thing we've watched over recent years is um, new aerial campaigns to do a blockade of Taiwan. So they're basically sending jets and bombers all the way around Taiwan so that they can close it down from all sides 
Um, there's also some mention of possibly having greater capabilities, demonstrating the capabilities to strike bases like Okinawa or Guam. But I'd say the biggest takeaway here is that that's closing the gap with the U.S. military in full view. This report also says something not surprising. China's doing that in secret. They continue to use cyber theft, other sorts of computer intrusions, illicit approaches to obtain national security and export restricted technologies. So they're, they're catching up both behind the scenes and in full view of us and our allies. Wow. Amazing. Look, I, I always appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Yep. Luke Vargas with uh, Talk Media News. You can find him on Twitter at The Courier. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and your and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Jason in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Jason, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? How's it going, Tom? Great. Uh, I just was listening to the uh, majority report, and they had someone on that said Denmark was more capital. They had some study that said the. Denmark was more capitalist than the United States and least corrupt. The Republicans say that big government will lead to corruption, but the Denmark's they got a big government and it's the least corrupt. So it's just kind of yeah. And 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 capitalism works better there because it's well regulated. It's amazing, and I just wish the United States would catch up in that area. Yeah. I just I wondered your opinion on whether or not uh, you thought that uh, state banks or the post office becoming a uh, bank is something that might happen in the next decade, or if you thought that was a good idea or not. To I think like... both are quite likely. California has been flirting with this for some time, but there are some uh, communities. In fact, we had a guest on talking about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry, I don't remember which state it was. There are efforts actually in several states, and there are also efforts at the county and city level to create uh, you know, state chartered banks nonprofit banks so that uh, those municipalities, those those banks, I think San Francisco has been talking about this, that they can create their own bank. And instead of having to send billions of dollars to Citibank or Chase or or Wells Fargo every every uh, month, millions of dollars in profits for those banks, they can take that profit that would normally be made on banking and use it to fund their own city and their own efforts. 
Thanks, Tom, and I hope you have a good day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. Let's see here. Uh, Irwin in Missoula, Montana. Hey, Irwin, what's up? Hello, Tom. Uh, yes, I called a couple of weeks ago. I was looking at greenhouse gas production per capita, mm-hmm. and you ask about different countries. Now, I gave a figure last time of about 3,000 uh, looking at the whole globe. Mm-hmm. The units were wrong. I was looking at an EPA study that, that's out since the new administration. And the units were confusing. They were in carbon. They weren't in carbon dioxide. So it's, it was about three times higher than that. Mm-hmm. I looked at uh, Smithsonian, uh, an article in that, and used their figures from the World Bank. And here is what I came up with. This is from 2012. China is about 19,000 pounds per person. The U.S. is about 43,000 pounds per person. Per year, the right. EU. EU is about 20,000 pounds per person. India is about 5,000 pounds per person. Russia is the same as us, about 43,000. Japan's about 25,000. Canada had the highest at about 61,000. Erwin, I'm sorry we're hitting the break here, but thank you. Thank you for sharing research with us. It sounds like, you know, we've got a long way to go. Russia and the United States are right up there at the the top of the carbon pollution. I'm, I'm sure we're both working on it. Uh, Linda in Chicago. Hey, Linda, thanks for listening on Chicago's Progressive Talk. What's up? Well, I want to ask you a question. Is Why hasn't David Duke and other, uh, other Nazi leaders here in the U.S. who were born here or not born here have their citizenship taken away? Even their national citizenship can be taken away under the Section 3 little paragraph. And, and I just want to—I I just want to know why something has never been done to to stop this. I—I—I I, I can't stand this divide in this country of black, white, Asian, uh, uh, all of it. I, I wasn't yeah. brought up this way. I get what you're saying, Linda, but the thing that we need to remember, the lesson that we need to constantly remember, is anything the government does to our enemies, it can do to us. And so if we were to change U.S. policy, I mean, take, stripping somebody of their citizenship is effectively a, a form of banishment. It's one of the most, you know, short of being executed for treason, probably the most severe punishment that can be meted out to anybody uh, short of imprisonment. It's a really, really radical step. Donald Trump and his buddies probably think that I'm worse than David Duke. And if we were to start taking away people's citizenship because we disagree with their politics, you and I might be next on the list, Linda. I understand that, but it's like this hatred that this man has caused over the years and feeding ignorant people who don't want to read or look into is just so heartbreaking. I I absolutely agree, Linda. I, I, I absolutely agree. The thing to do about it is to inform people to wake people up. Linda, thank you for the call. Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, let's just clarify a few things. Democratic socialists, they do not want to have the government own industry in the United States. So they're not Marxist socialists. Karl Marx defined socialism as the ownership of the means of production by the state. That is not what democratic socialists want. They want private business to be private business. No democratic socialist wants the government to make our blue jeans or our cars or anything else. So number one, dial down your hysteria. 
This is a completely different thing. Number two, democratic socialism is what Franklin Roosevelt was practicing and preaching with the New Deal, with the WPA, with long-term unemployment insurance, with the Social Security Administration, with the right of labor to unionize. These were all democratic socialist positions. Uh, they, they, this was expanded by Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s with Medicare and Medicaid and other social safety net programs. That's democratic socialism in a nutshell. And the countries that practice democratic socialism, the Northern European countries, have the highest quality of life on earth. Canada practices democratic socialism. Everybody in the country has free health care. I mean, literally free. You don't pay for drugs, you don't pay for anything. And here in the United States, we have practiced some democratic socialism with Social Security, Medicare, public education for everybody, free K through 12. You know, our public roads are democratic socialist. The Koch brothers and other libertarian billionaires out there who want to own all of that stuff, all of those commons, and, you know, they are trying to use the word socialism to attack it. It's a BS attack. And, you know, anybody under 40 knows this. This is stuff that mostly people who remember the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, you know, we remember that as socialism. That is not what democratic socialists are talking about. Pure and simple, period, end of discussion. Richard in Los Angeles. Hey, Richard, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Hey, Tom. Could you please explain to me why Trump wants his stupid military parade, which is going to cost millions and millions of dollars? Because he has an empty bucket. He's got a deep hole in his soul. He constantly needs love, praise, and reassurance. And when he stood next to Macron in, in Paris uh, during the last Bastille Day uh, celebration last year, and saw, you know, large chunks of the French military or representatives of the French military marching by, saluting Macron, you know, with great pride and all this kind of stuff. He was like, wow, I want people to love me like that. I want them to salute me like that. I think that's what it's all about. I don't think he cares what us as tourists watching it. I think he just wants to have a whole bunch of the military saluting him. See, now he's blaming the mayor for I know. overestimating the cost. Which is BS. I mean, you know, he's... It is going to cost the city of Washington, D.C. a lot, particularly if he brings heavy equipment on. They're going to have to repave all the streets and maybe reinforce them before the parade. You know, it's going to be very expensive. And he's claiming, oh, you know, we can't do it because of D.C. Eh, I think I think what's happening is the military itself. One of the military organizations, I, it might have been the Military Times, which is owned by Gannett, did a survey. I'm not sure it was, though, but it, I saw it in two different newspapers. It's been recently published where they did a survey of active duty military members and found that over 80 percent of them thought that the parade, the military parade, was either a stupid idea or an outright bad idea that hearkened to, you know, dictatorships and whatnot. I mean, in, in France, it's a celebration of defeating the Nazis. There are still people alive in France who remember the defeat of the Nazis. Not a lot of them, but there are still some. And they're going to celebrate that for a while. It was a big deal. You know, the Nazis did not invade the United States, and we did not, we did not fight that battle here. So I'm guessing that, that you know, they were, they're more interested in having a military style, yeah, we won, than we are. But, you know, I, I, I just think it's sad. Richard, thank you for the call. Uh, excellent point. And Fred in Hillsborough, Maryland. Hey, Fred, what's up? Hey, Tom. I've been reading where the media companies have, have all tried to band together to push back on the quote-unquote fake news. But I think the media print and electronic both factions need to, need to put out an education program to educate people the difference between let's say facts or the points of the story how to look for the five w's in a story right. and to tout to tout page two 
and especially in print, I mean, where they can look. If something we screw up something today, it's going to be on page two tomorrow as a correction or an amplification, as they say. And I just said electronic is going to be tougher because how many, especially I'll pick on Fox, to show host, are they journalists, are they opinion Right. Social commentators. Yeah, you're essentially calling for critical thinking skills to be taught in our schools, and I completely agree. The five I, W's and the H of, of journalism, who, who, what, when, where, why, and how, uh, are not always clearly identifiable in a lot of these so-called news stories, the fake news stories in particular. They tend to go on innuendo or hysteria. You know, who is the source of this thing is not something that we pay a lot of attention to or that American, a lot of Americans don't. You know, whether they're believing that the system to communicate with submarines is part of some giant weather experiment or whatever. I'm with you, Fred. Because they're, all they're doing right now is just responding. Oh, yeah. not fake news. Well, that's in Sun Tzu. They've lost the war. Yeah, I, I so agree. They're, and, they're, and They're responding, but they've got to educate the public because we need to be reminded of what facts are. They're not more than words. You know, if a right-wing radio talk show host says these are the facts, well, maybe they aren't. They're just his words. But or a left-wing, for that things. matter, too. I mean, I, as a point of pride, the 15 years I've been doing this show, I don't think that you can point to anything that I've ever said and held to. I mean, I've said a few things that were wrong. I go out of my way to backtrack, clarify, say I was wrong on this. But anything that I have said and, and hold to over any kind of period of time at all, more than a day or three, I don't think you can find anything that is inaccurate in anything that I've said. On the other hand, if you go to MediaMatters.org, literally every day they are fact-checking Fox News and some of the right-wing hate radio out there. And it's shocking the stuff that these people are telling people that people are believing. Yes. I'm with you, Fred. Yes. Very, very well said. Like thank you. Thank you very much. Carol watching us on YouTube in Seattle. Hey, Carol, what's up? I'm wondering if you have come across something in your climate uh, change research uh, called HARP. That's H-A-A-R-P. And it's a government uh, entity run by, well, it was, it closed, I think, in 2014, but it was run by the Air Force, the Navy, the University of Alaska, and DARPA. And it was based on uh, Nikola Tesla's research and it, uh, the way I understand it, I'm no scientist, but radio waves that ordinarily from a tower would broadcast ending in the large end of a cone are reversed, and it would start from the large end of the cone and then focus, and it would heat and manipulate to the ionosphere. Yeah. And uh, the Air Force uh, claimed at some point, um, I don't know, some 10 years ago or so, maybe more, that they owned the weather. This, this Carol, part- you're, you're buying into a conspiracy theory. Here's, here's how it works. Radio frequency mm-hmm. radiation, radio waves, can penetrate different things depending on their frequency. Microwave radiation, which is very, very high frequency radiation, you know, two billion cycles per second and higher. Microwave radiation has a very, very hard time penetrating anything that's metallic, for example, which is why your microwave with a metal door doesn't whack you. Um, uh, high frequency, very high frequency radiation, like UHF TV frequencies and the frequencies that are used for cell towers, they can only travel uh, you know, up to a mile or a few miles with any ease. It becomes much more difficult for them to travel you know, hundreds of miles. Lower frequency radiation, FM frequencies, where you're just you know, 100 megahertz, uh, FM frequencies can travel 50 miles or thereabouts, but they're they're somewhat limited too. You get into the lower frequency radiations where it's only thousands of cycles per second or hundreds of thousands of cycles per second, you know, like 560 AM, that's 560,000 cycles per second, right? There you can actually bounce the signal off the ionosphere and, and 
transmitted all the way to Europe when the weather's just right. You can have an AM signal that travels a really long distance, but it still won't penetrate the Earth or the ocean. None of these frequencies are low enough to penetrate the Earth or the ocean. As frequencies get lower and lower and lower, that is fewer cycles per second, and yes, Tesla did develop this. As frequencies get lower and lower, they become more and more capable of penetrating things that higher frequency radiation can't penetrate, like the oceans. And the problem that the military had was how to communicate with submarines in the deep sea. And what they developed was this HARP program that transmits at like 10 to 40 cycles per second. It's called ELF, extremely low frequency radiation. And it's only, it's basically to communicate with our submarines. And that's why it's there. And a whole bunch of people who don't understand, you know, this basic principle. And low frequency radiation doesn't heat up anything. That's microwave stuff. So the people who don't understand this developed this elaborate conspiracy theory that has taken on a life of its own. And that's all it is, Carol. There's no science behind it at all. So, you know, relax. Thanks for the call. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi. I'm not a Christian, but I don't know or understand how abortion and homosexuality became the bane of Christianity, since there's nothing mentioned that I know of in the Bible, which you can say chapter and verse. There's one place in Deuteronomy and Leviticus where they are cataloging the 638, as I recall, laws that people have to live by if they were members of the Jewish religion or Hebrews or whatever they called themselves back 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. And it simply says that men shall not lay with other men. It says it's an abomination. Subsequent lines say it's an abomination to eat shellfish. It's an abomination to wear clothing made out of two different kinds of fabrics. I don't uh-huh. see evangelicals, you know, uh, raiding Red Lobster, you know, I, to the best of my knowledge, right. it's not happening. They're, they're very selective in which of the rules they want to follow and which are the rules they want to get hysterical about. You're, you're picking and choosing from your religious texts to, to mm-hmm. subsidize or to support essentially your bigotry, your fear. It, it, most bigotry mm-hmm. is, in fact, I would say probably all bigotry is grounded in fear. And so, you know, right. people, people who hate gay people are people who fear right. gay people. And many of them are probably fearing the gay impulses that they themselves feel from time to time. Right. But all these negative things they're doing, don't they know that they're going to be undone in the future? I mean, all these no. whatever he's doing, I guess they're waiting for the Democrats to come in and save the country again. while they sort of exploit it, knowing that they, a short term they get a lot of money and then the Democrats will straighten out the world. Yeah. Uh, who knows? But but it's it's uh, our having conversations. If it's being heard by a ten or twelve year old gay kid, is the kind of thing that sets up a fifteen year old suicide. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the the suicide rate among gay children is higher than any other population in the United States, and right. as and a percentage of the population. Mm-hmm. Bill, thanks for the call. Uh, spot on, Steve in North Troy, Vermont. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, Tom. Greetings from the home of the bugless summer. Uh, we're seeing it up here in Vermont also. Oh, my. Uh, I, I, you know, I used to shuttle hikers to and from the Long Trail to Burlington for many years. Mm-hmm. In summer, I would have to, you know, actually pull over to, to clean the windshield from, yep. from bugs. And, now there's none. Uh, yeah, and now there's none, and in the birds that eat them and stuff, too. But there's also a Consumer Reports thing in today's paper mm-hmm. where they found heavy metals in uh, baby food. And we're getting doused with uh, mercury and cadmium and lead from coal burning. Yep. And it's bound to get in the soil. And now we've, uh, I saw that the article on the glyphosate uh, lawsuit. 
the glyphosate is getting up in the water column and it's falling back to the earth as rain. We've gone from using 30 million tons a year to 400 tons a year. Wow. And there's nothing, nothing but uh, GMO. Luckily, I'm in a little pocket of organic growers up here. Yeah. But over in Franklin County and stuff, there's nothing but the miles and miles of the GMO corn. You know, our famous ice cream makers up here. Yeah, right? yes. you know, yeah I, I know. They're, and they're doing their best. Steve, I want to get one more call in here before the end of the day, but thank you for your call. Uh, Stephen in Cambridge, Mass., listening on AM 910. Hey, Stephen, what's up? you got one minute. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Oh, yeah, I was just thinking of the uh, fearful leader there, and I came up with... Uh, the, I'm sorry, what multiple, there? Uh, a fearful, he has multiple personality disorder, and I can think of three New Yorkers. Oh, Trump? That's perfect. Bernie Madoff, Eric Spitzer, and Leona Helmsley, all rolled into one. I hope he has a good weekend. Yeah. Thank you, you too, Tom. Yeah, okay, thanks, thanks. a lot. Thanks a lot, Stephen. I'm not sure I'd put Elliot Spitzer if that was who you intended to put into that list. Elliot Spitzer was taken down by uh, Roger Stone. Nancy, we have 30 seconds. Do you have something quick you want to say? Oh, yes, Tom. I was thinking about messaging. And when my hero Bernie Sanders gets attacked as being too extremist, why don't they simply turn it around and say, How, what's extreme, not extreme about a billionaire class where it used to be multi-millionaires and now it's billionaire classes. Yep, I, I completely agree. And what's not extreme about wanting to destroy Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, public schools, roads? I mean, this is the this is the Republican agenda to destroy all this stuff. It is extreme. And no, Bernie is right in the middle of the FDR agenda. He's totally mainstream, as is much of the Democratic Party. And a fine thing it is, by the way. So on that note... We will be back. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.